0: It's fairly quiet on the sustainability front at the moment. This week I went to a presentation called Dreams versus Reality, the gap between what people want renewables to deliver and what they can deliver. Very interesting and quite controversial. The speaker's conclusion was that we will never meet all our energy needs without fossil fuels. I'm not gonna say more because he's agreed to an interview for a future episode. Let's just say that I didn't agree with everything that he said. This week, we learn more about the UK's nuclear program, community energy, a giant polar bear, another refugee crisis, wasted food, and the price of oil. Yes, this is Anthony Day, and welcome to another episode of the Sustainable Futures Show. First, the latest chapter of Jeremy Leggett's book, The Winning of the Carbon War, is now out and available for free download from his website. That's jeremyleggett.net, double G double T. He's both optimistic and pessimistic. Optimistic in that key financial institutions are clearly beginning to realise that fossil fuel production is no longer a viable investment. Pessimistic as the founder of a solar energy company in the face of the dramatic cuts to the feed in tariff announced by the government, which I reported on last week. Although the price of coal, like other commodities, has fallen, this has not prevented the closure of Eggborough power station, which will take place in March next year. The plant produces 2 gigawatts, or approximately 4% of the UK's requirement, and was recently purchased by a Czech company. That's a company from the Czech Republic. They've come to the conclusion that they cannot justify the investment needed to keep it going. One less coal-fired power station means a significant reduction in carbon emissions, but it also means a significant reduction in generating capacity, which is important given the narrow winter margin in the UK between supply and demand. Maybe that's why the closure will not be effective until March. There is no doubt that replacement of generating capacity is problematic. A new nuclear plant was scheduled to come on stream at Hinkley Sea, producing 3.2 gigawatts, significantly more than Egborough, in 2017. Then the start date was revised to 2023. But now EDF, which is leading the project, has announced that production will not start in 2023 and no revised date has been offered. The causes of the delay are twofold. First, the financing of the project last plan for July 2014, is still not in place. It is hoped that an agreement will be reached when China's Premier Xi Jinping comes to London next month. The Chinese could take up to 40% of the project. Although whether they still want to after the recent turmoil in Chinese financial markets must be an open question. Another problem with financing is a dispute with the European Union over the level of government subsidy while the initial dispute has been resolved Austria has filed a legal complaint with the European Commission also over subsidies the British government is effectively offering a subsidy by guaranteeing a high price for each unit of electricity produced for 30 years and it is a high price a new report from the International Energy Agency and Nuclear Energy Agency has indicated that the cost of UK nuclear is the highest in the world and up to three times the cost in Asia. The second cause of delay is technical. At EDF's new plant at Flamanville in France, with the same new design as planned for Hinkley C, defects have been found in steel components of the pressure vessel. Test results will not be known until next month. Flamanville was originally due to cost 3 billion euros and be ready by 2012, but has seen costs spiral. EDF said Flamanville would now not start generating until 2018, a year later than the most recent estimates, and six years later than planned, and would cost not 3 billion euros, but 10.5 billion euros. A similar plant in Finland is also six years late and expected to start operation in 2018, after similar cost overruns. Regardless of all this, it is clear that nuclear is not going to solve the UK's energy gap in the next five or even ten years. If fracking works, even with the government's accelerated permission regime, it will be five years before we see any gas produced. Will we have the gas power stations to use it? Would anyone invest in a gas power station unless they could be sure of supplies to run it? If we have a cold winter, it's going to be extremely difficult to keep the UK's lights on. I'm old enough to remember the three-day week in the 70s. We worked five days in my office, but on two days in the week we went home when it got dark. I also remember studying by candlelight. Of course, in the 70s, we did not have computers or mobile phones. Everything was mechanical. Calculators, typewriters, communications were sent by post on paper. Although I think we did have a telex. Ask me about that later. How do we cope now? With difficulty, I think. There will have to be voltage reductions and in the extreme, scheduled blackouts. If you were managing the grid, what would you choose to cut? Hospitals? Supermarkets? Banks? Railways? Homes? Glad that's not my decision. Community energy. What is community energy? Well, it could be part of the solution to our energy problems. Community energy is where local groups get together to build a wind turbine, a solar farm or a hydroelectric plant. The objective is cheaper energy, clean energy and a financial return either to the members or to the community. It's more than an idea there are successful projects all over the UK. On Saturday the 12th of September York Community Energy is holding a half-day conference where representatives of local energy groups will be showcasing their projects. Find out more at yorkcommunityenergy.org.uk This is a free event. You may have seen images of Emma Thompson and a giant polar bear protesting on behalf of Greenpeace outside the headquarters of Shell in London this week. Of course, polar bears catch the public attention, but this is not about polar bears, and while the Arctic is very important, The key issue here is that the company is searching for yet more fossil fuel. Almost no one is denying the reality of climate change and the contribution of fossil fuel use to its growth. Yet companies like Shell continue to exploit fossil fuels in the full knowledge that it will damage our future on this planet and governments permit them to do so. It seems to be too easy to close our eyes to the consequences, to the sea level rise to the drought ridden countries where crops fail, to the raging wildfires, devastating parts of California and Washington state, to other parts of the world overwhelmed by floods and mudslides. This week we have seen some of the worst consequences of people displaced from their homes and becoming refugees. The issue is becoming a crisis and governments are struggling to know how to act. These refugees are escaping war zones But as climate change worsens with floods, desertification and sea level rise, many, many more people will be displaced from their homes. Paddy Ashdown, former Lib Dem leader, made exactly this point on BBC Radio 4 this week. Maybe the present crisis is a useful dress rehearsal for much bigger refugee crises to come. I'm conscious that the Sustainable Futures show has a strong emphasis on energy. It's an important, if not vital, issue, but it's not the whole of sustainability. So here's an item about food from the Chartered Institute of Waste Management. On the 9th of September Kerry McCarthy MP, Labour MP for Bristol East, will be introducing her Food Waste Reduction Bill in the House of Commons. The bill seeks to ensure that more of the obscene amounts of food needlessly wasted through the food industry supply chains, from production through to retail, is prevented or available to charities for redistribution to people living in food poverty. This bill, which McCarthy says is receiving strong cross-party support, is backed by food waste campaigning organisations feedback, and this is rubbish, as well as by Fair Share, WWF UK, Friends of the Earth and Sustain, The alliance for better food and farming the bill addresses the shocking and unsustainable levels of industry food waste globally around a third of all food produced is wasted it also responds to the need to meet the global challenge of feeding a growing population from an increasingly scarce agricultural base if the amount of food wasted around the world were reduced by just 25 percent there would be enough to feed everyone on this planet, she says. McCarthy says that until now, government policies have primarily focused on household food waste, which has reduced by 21% since 2007, but has largely ignored the waste generated by the food industry throughout its supply chain. She says that the food industry's voluntary targets simply aren't ambitious enough to drive the level of reduction needed or equal to the challenge of meeting EU and UN targets on food waste reduction. The bill will oblige supermarkets to donate unsold food, along the lines of recent Belgian and French legislative proposals, which was inspired by a wave of popular support for new laws to end the scandal of supermarket food waste. Although the French laws were recently revoked, hopefully temporarily, for legislative procedural reasons, they ignited petitions for similar laws in the UK and the EC also passed a resolution recommending for this law to be extended across Europe. The bill will require large supermarkets and manufacturers to publish and transparently report their food waste across the supply chain. It will set ambitious food waste targets equal to the challenge of meeting EU and UN targets on food waste reduction. It will require the government to review its current system of fiscal measures which perversely make it cheaper to sell food nearing its use-by date for anaerobic digestion and composting, rather than for redistribution, and to implement incentives or disincentives to enforce the food-waste hierarchy. Unfortunately, the bill is unlikely to succeed unless the government gives it support. Let's see what happens. And finally, back in January, I asked you to predict the price of oil 12 months on. It's briefly dipped below $40 a barrel, but seemed to have recovered a bit. My forecast of January 2016 was $65 a barrel. What's yours? Well, that's it for another week. Who knows what seven more days will bring? apart from another issue of the Sustainable Futures show, of course. This is Anthony Day. Do keep listening and I'll keep talking. Bye for now. (music)